and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast asking the question, what does it mean to be fully alive in the 21st century? And how can we best embody that aliveness while dealing with the unique stressors that we're facing in this strange and potent time? Another way to describe what I'm trying to do with this show is that we're creating an ultimate comprehensive treatise on how anybody living in the Western 21st century world can find balance. And in order to find balance, I think it's really important to take an inventory of all of the things that affect your being, that affect your vitality. And alternatively, to investigate all the things that your vitality or lack of vitality are then co-creating. So in order to do this, we have to look at the way that we treat our bodies, our minds, our spirits, and also how we are treating our communities, our purchases, our interactions with people who may be more oppressed. And something I think is really important in this idea of taking inventory is to look at all of the human experiences and categorize whether or not we are actually fully embracing them to the best of our ability or if we are numbing ourselves to them. And something I recognize a lot in our society is that we have lost the capacity to sit with grief. Uh, To a large degree, there's really not a strong social conversation on what to do when things actually start falling apart around us. Our there's a lot of systems that we're participating in and capitalism, i.e. our jobs, the way that we um, spend 40 to 50 hours a week at a place. There's really no room for this kind of thing. But in order to be fully human, fully alive and plugged into your energy in this society, we need to reclaim our ability to feel our ability to allow ourselves to have the full expression of human experience. Grief is one of these things that I think is largely brushed under the rug. And as a result, it doesn't go away, but it manifests in our vitality, in our ability to show up more clearly and presently with the things of our lives. So in order to really explore this, to draw a comprehensive map that you can then use to plug into your own life, I felt inspired to invite today's guest on. Um, Her name is Michelle C. Johnson. She is the author of Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World, and Finding Refuge, Heartwork for Healing Collective Grief. I recently found her platform from another podcaster, Tracy Stanley, and her show Radiant Rest, and I really resonated with the message that she was bringing, and I think that it's something that is very important and often overlooked in that we have a sense of collective grief. Specific communities may have more or less, but the grief of one group affects the grief of everybody, so... This conversation was really special for me in that I was able to have a very open-hearted conversation with somebody that has had a very different life situation than I, but still to be able to come together and to share the human experience of dealing with these heavy emotions and how everything is interdependent and the suffering of one person ripples outwards. So 
Michelle is not only an author, she's a yoga teacher, she's a social justice activist, licensed clinical social worker, and dismantling racism trainer. A big part of her platform is addressing the role of ancestral trauma. Um, as a woman of color, she very openly and freely explores what her karmic inheritance entails. It is really powerful to hear her words and her vulnerability. And that's something that we actually open this conversation with. And I think in the way that she shows up for herself is a lesson for everybody. And I'm honestly just very honored and humbled to be able to provide this conversation to you, my listeners. Um, and I hope that you feel as strongly about it as I had in recording this. So that's what today's going to be about. We're, we're talking about how to create room for grief in our life. We're talking about how to feel the inherited resonance of our ancestors' grief, how to actually do healing that works retroactively to touch our ancestors and that right now is the pivotal moment that we can transform our karma to be one with less suffering and how we can also hold space for other people as they are processing and overall what it means to fall apart, fall into pieces. So this is very apt for this time of year um, as we enter the darkest time of the year. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing today. If you want to plug into Michelle's work, um, Skill in Action, Finding Refuge, I think both of them are on social media. I will have all the links to all of her platforms in the description below. Um, I really encourage you to stay involved. She does a lot of podcasts. She is constantly doing speaking engagements, and all of them are very fruitful for people to check out. So if you want to support this show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, subscribe over on YouTube. I probably screwed those up. I don't know. You know what to do in the digital age. Uh, we're all here. If you are touched by any of the episodes that I've done, I really do encourage you to help a brother out. Uh, see if you can um, help raise the viewership. You know, These guests are very special, and I just want to make sure that these conversations reach as many hearts as they possibly can. And that is, I mean, essentially what we're here for. So yeah, I think that that's about it. Um, sit back, drink some tea, do some stretches, and please open your hearts truly for Michelle C. Johnson. All right, we are now live. Michelle, hello, and thank you so much right off the bat for joining me on this. It's rainy here in Michigan, but this rainy Tuesday. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for inviting me to be here. And it's not raining here. It's I'm in North Carolina. It's sunny today, and it's really beautiful. Oh, well, I feel like it was pretty fitting, for me at least, with the kind of conversation that we're going to be having. It kind of mirrored that. Um, mm -hmm. I said this before we started the recording, but I recently went through your book, Finding Refuge. Um, I heard about you from Tracy Stanley's platform. I've been plugged into her for a little bit and her Radiant Rest work and really enjoyed your conversation with her. And I'm just honestly honored that you felt uh, inspired to join me. So um, I really want to take some time to talk about um, the process of this book 
and your experience with navigating the world of actually addressing grief, which is something I think people don't realize they might need help doing. They're like, oh yeah, you know, I've, I've moved through stuff, but this book really highlights some of the intricacies and the subtleties and how pervasive and how much it can affect us. So I, I just wanted to kind of start off by what inspired you to start a book like this? Yeah, this, it's a good question. And I keep asking myself and people keep asking me, like, where did this come from? And I think it came from different different places and people and experiences. And my consistent answer has been about ancestors and this idea coming to me about two and a half years ago, um, maybe a little over two and a half years ago, to create a space for folks to come together and grieve. And um, that came to me prior to COVID and I was planning this retreat that was going to take place in person in June of 2020. And of course we moved that online. Um, and in that planning, I knew I was going to write another book and knew that the book needed to be about collective grief. And of course then COVID happened and all the different things happened. Um, all the different systems of oppression have been illuminated through this time as well. And so the backdrop for my writing this book was COVID-19. And um, I wrote the book and finished it in August of 2020 and in June of 2020 held that space for folks. And um, I believe the ancestors guided me to, to write this um, and to bring this conversation forward because I think there is some information about individual grief and how we process it. I think there's limited information about that and certainly limited space for folks to process their grief. There's discouragement um, around that. And I think there's even less information about what we're experiencing as a collective and really wanted to offer something that would invite people to not only think about their individual experiences of grief, but also this collective experience. And what a time for this book to have emerged and come out. Um, given that we've all experienced so much loss over the last almost two years. Yeah. Yeah. The, the feeling that I had while I was reading this is, I mean, this conversation is so needed and your level of vulnerability makes it such an impactful thing that you have a lot of stories in here of your own personal life that I think is really in itself a teaching of how we need to kind of be able to talk about this freely and the word that kind of came into my head as I was reading it is that you're doing the work of grief doulaship and that you're kind of like showing people the way, like the doorway into stepping into their own power and being able to face the things that we're often so repressive of. So, I mean, with that level of vulnerability, have you always kind of had that level of connection with these heavy emotions in your body or is this something you've had to kind of um, steward into your own life? It's a good question. I, um, and I like grief doulaship. I've thought about that for sure. Like that is what I'm, I'm supporting people in or stewarding them into this process of, of honoring their grief and our grief. And, um, I'm, I'm imagining what my mother would say in response to this question. And she would say that I was a really serious child and, um, that I was, and still am a big feeler and very sensitive to the world. And so I, and I actually just wrote a chapter about this for this book I'm working on. I wrote about the heaviness that I felt as a child and the awareness that something was off and going on and we weren't talking about it. And I kept wanting to be like, why aren't we talking about 
this feeling I have, I don't even have words for it because I was a child. And so I don't think it's new the the like sensitivity to um, the ways in which we're misaligned and how that's causing harm. That doesn't feel new. Of course, language around that does um, now. And um, it's interesting that you asked this question because I was recording the audio version of Finding Refuge and I was having this experience of reading the words and knowing, oh, this is your story and really feeling the vulnerability as I was reading it, but also trying to read it to, to do the task of reading the audiobook. And the person who was recording it, uh, I said to him, I was like, oh, I've shared everything. Like I've shared so many things in Finding Refuge about who I am and what I've been through. And he's like, well, that's kind of who you are. And he doesn't really know me well, but he recorded Skill in Action and this. And so I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is part of who I am to bring this level of truth and vulnerability to a space and then to invite people into that same practice. That feels true to, to who I am and how I move through the world. Um, and to take those risks in, in sharing what's actually in my heart. Because I don't, I don't really think we have time to pretend. Um, yeah. I know it's a skill to learn how to talk about what's going on. I'm, that takes time and practice. And, and so many people have been encouraged to suppress their feelings and not honor them. So I understand that. And if I can model that level of vulnerability and that can help people deepen their intimacy and connection to their own vulnerability and to share that in space, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, I agree. What do you think it is about our society that doesn't want to create space for us to actually feel, talk about and process our grief in an open way? Do you think it has something to do with white supremacy and like the capitalist structure of like productivity? There's really no room for that because it doesn't make somebody money. Or do you think that it kind of naturally arised as a response of just humans not having the capacity to kind of process this with this kind of potential? This is making me think about what you just said, humans having the um, like capacity to process the gravity of what's going on, I'm actually really curious if at some point we did. Because I'm thinking about um, ancestors and actually in everyone's ancestry, I would imagine there was some sort of ritual and ceremony and ceremonies around death and grief and loss and loss of people and loss of dreams and loss of land. Um, and, and rituals around celebration or working with the elements and calling them in. And so I'm curious to know, was there a time when our people, whoever we're connected to, when our people actually did come together in space and hold grief? And I believe there was. I don't know, but I believe that there, there was in my body that this feels true to me, that this actually happened before. And because of systems like white supremacy and capitalism, that you know, we've been stripped of those um, connections to our ancestors and um, of ritual as well around almost everything, right? And I think some of that is about productivity, but I think some of it's about um, purifying in this way that that is not in service of the collective good. It's like containing who we are, right? So we don't actually have to deal with the trauma and reckon with the trauma that we've, we've experienced and that we are perpetuating. That feels so linked to white supremacy. Like if we just mm -hmm. pretend it didn't happen and it's not real and it's not a thing, then it's not a thing, which is that's not the reality for, for so many people as they move through their lives. So I do think there was a time when people processed grief in a different way. And I think throughout, I mean, many generations, 
we've been, many of us have been conditioned to contain our emotions instead of express our emotions. And almost every institution, we can think about school, like school taught me to express only certain emotions and to contain myself, right? And this way of like controlling myself and how I felt. And there were family messages about that as well. And um, so I just think there's this socialization around what we do with our emotions. And that includes what we do in response to grief and loss. And I think it's, it's deeply um, damaging to us as a collective, because I always say, if we don't process our grief, we're gonna cause more grief right, for people. Right. Like this is what we will do. It is what we are doing now. Um, so I believe that we can, I always say, remember to remember, mm-hmm. like move into this space of remembering um, how our ancestors came together in community and processed and celebrated and engaged in ceremony and ritual. And I think that's key. Like we need, we need um, that if we're going to actually move forward and through this moment. Yeah. Yeah, as you were saying that, it kind of just kind of struck me that like we really don't have any ritual both for grief or for like a genuine sense of celebration. I feel like a lot of the communal um, mainstream ways that we celebrate, it's like Christmas or Thanksgiving or all of these things which have become so commercialized and kind of profit driven that by not being able to celebrate other elements of life, we're actually stripping ourselves of our ability to hold space for the grief. So it's kind of like we're losing out on both sides of the human experience of both the joy and the kind of the the hardship of it. So we're, we've kind of like numbed ourselves into this weird middle state where there's just the depth of human experience is not as fully articulated. And as a result, you know, we have all this emotional energy. And I like that you kind of pointed to that and that sits in the body, you know, you need a way to process that. And I think our ancestors knew that. And that's what coming together in community and having, you know, ritual and ceremony and tying it to the astrological elements, it kept us really grounded in our bodies, but we're so disconnected from our bodies because all this energy is so intense. So it's so intense, we don't have a container to feel it. So now we're just kind of like alienated from ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things like capitalism want us to be distracted from the body, right? Our connection to the body and to the earth and to the collective. So everywhere we might turn, there's information that says, don't focus on the body, right? Mm-hmm. Don't focus on the fact that you're in a body and you're having a particular experience and you're feeling this way and that other folks are in bodies. I always say bodies are doing things to other bodies, right? This is how oppression operates because people wow. are making choices from the body um, or from a space of being disembodied, having been disembodied. So wow. yeah, I think it's, it's. Um, I mean, this is I'm a, a yoga practitioner and, and spiritual practitioner and this is you know one of the reasons why i feel like it's so important for us to to be in the body and this is part of the remembering process like systems of oppression have moved us away from the body and so we need practices to get back in the body and not only individually to your point but also in in community as well and that can happen through ritual and the way we're talking about it yeah do you think, what do you think it is about communal engagement with our grief that allows it to actually move that energy within us? Like, what do you think the function of community helps us do, if that makes sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm reflecting on the experience with this group of 40 people who came together in June of 2020 online, virtually, and um, uh, 
what happened in that space, there was a lot of affirmation and validation of what's going on, or I'm completely overwhelmed by what's happening, or I don't understand everything I thought was true is not true. And there's so much uncertainty and I can't make plans. I think that's one thing that happens in community because I, I think that um, moving through a process of, of um, grieving and experiencing loss sometimes for me, um, it can narrow my perspective. Like it can, I think we need to grieve, but it can make me feel like I'm the only one feeling this in this particular way. Um, and of course the world sends messages about that. Dominant culture does that to me too, but there's this way that I can really focus on my experiences. If the collective's not having an experience of grief too, like I'm, I'm so in the, the pain of it or the suffering of it, or I don't ever think it will end or all of that. And I think being with others validates that we're, we are all having some experience of grief and loss. Um, we're all going to die. Like we're not going to, I said this, I think on, on Tracy Stanley's podcast, like we're all going to die. So we're grieving that, like just sit with that, you know, yeah. and we're all going to lose people and we're going to lose dreams and we're going to lose relationships and we're going to, we're going to birth new things. These things often happen at the same time in my experience. So I think community can affirm and can decrease our isolation and can normalize a conversation about grief and then can allow us to move through it. It's not as if I want people to be in a space where they're grieving forever and ever and can't be, be part of the living, right? Can't be part of life. Um, I, I do want people to, to do both. I want people to grieve so that they can be more fully like part of life and connected and feel the full range of emotions in the way that you named earlier. So um, community is so powerful and, you know, moving energy um, and, and helping us transform and transmute. And I think it's possible for community to, to transform and transmute grief. So we feel more free. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, the idea that I, I had was when you're in a community with people who are genuinely listening to you, there's almost like a co-regulation of nervous system energy. It's like when you're grieving, it's very similar. Like you are pained, you know, there is your entire nervous system is responding as if there's like a physical threat, really. So I feel like the idea of having community there to hold space for you when you're unable to be ground for yourself, then you can lean into other people as ground and I think what's really profound about this work of collectively healing is that you start to realize that grief is kind of a doorway into our interdependence. When we're able to use other people as ground, we're able to actually see that we are all intricately connected. And it's in those moments when you feel like the uplift, the inspiration from the people around you that we're able to start to see like, oh, I'm not an island, you know, and that's like mm -hmm. that function of feeling not alone is really, it's, you're truly, you're not alone. Right. Um, right. And we're never alone. Um, yeah. Yet dominant culture would have us believe we are. Um, and many other experiences would have us believe that we are, but that's not the reality. Like we're not, yeah. we're not alone. And that, that is part of the remembering as well. And I think if we remember our interconnectedness, then we actually can heal. But if we continue to believe we're individuals and we're islands and we're not actually related to other folks and connected, that will cause more harm. Yeah. Why do you think that we are like, I feel like, I don't know if it's a natural tendency. I don't want to say that, but it is right now in our dominant culture. Like when we hurt, 
everything tenses and we go in. There's almost like a reflection or a reaction to go into like the fetal position energetically. Do you think that, what, what do you think that that's about? Like how do we work with that kind of recoiling inward? I think, I mean, that may be a natural response, right? Um, the body and the brain trying to protect us. Like I do, I'm curious about that, if that's part of what is happening. But in what you described, there is this containment. Um, and we want to contain the emotions instead of opening to the emotions. And so I think that physical um, expression is a manifestation of this. I want to contain this and not show it. Yeah. Um, and some of that may come from, you know, showing it and people not witnessing it and honoring it and holding it or knowing that we actually have a space where we can be witnessed. I think there are a lot of things that contribute to people's, um, their, their condition tendency to protect and, and contain in this way. And I'll say that with finding refuge, the introduction is about the acquittal of George Zimmerman for murdering Trayvon Martin. And there was no way I was going to contain my emotions in that moment. It was not possible. And now I look at it as a gift from the ancestors, although it didn't feel like that at the time. But there was no containment. There was, you're going to crack open in all of these pieces and, and not be sure how you're going to be put back together again. Like th that was the part of my assignment at that time that then led to this, I believe. That's part of what led to finding refuge for sure. So I think it's that, like protection, containment, and... I would invite people to, to practice when there's that um, desire to contain or conditioned response to practice opening a little to what's going on. Like I notice I'm sad, I'm sobbing, or I want to sob, um, or I don't know why I lost this whatever it is, person, dream, relationship. I don't know why this is happening. How do I feel about it? To build that emotional capacity and, and intelligence um, I think that will be of more service to us individually and as a collective than continuing to, to move inward in a way that really often causes our grief um, and the emotions that surround it to, to stagnate. Mm -hmm. It's like the emotions don't go, they're still there as we named her. They're like in the body doing something and they can cause dis-ease in the body. Um, they can cause, I mean, many physical ailments, I feel like, are connected to unprocessed grief and unprocessed trauma. They can cause um, the mind to operate in a different way, uh, as well as the emotional state um, and the spirit. So I feel like opening to this so we can heal versus containing and then allowing emotions to stagnate because they're just going to be stuck in the body and the nervous system until we yeah. process them. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful and poignant image of like the idea of like falling apart and falling into pieces and the fact that you allowed yourself to actually enter that state. I think that it's that state that everybody is trying so desperately to avoid, which I, I kind of plug into the, the Buddhist um, lineage of things. And their whole thing, I mean, that's essentially what like sam is drives samsara, the nature of habitual reaction is like the avoidance of meeting the actual rawness of the moment. And within the rawness of the moment is a very tender heart, which is very much kind of puddling everywhere. And it really does seem like that that is what drives most action. And when we allow ourselves to fall apart, then 
we, we kind of take away like all of that extra fear. Like that's what fearlessness is, is by facing your fears. It's not by eradicating it or numbing it. It's about allowing yourself to fall apart and like mm-hmm. the release that comes with that. But mm-hmm. how do we, how do we begin? You know, I feel like when I think about this and it's easy for me as somebody who has spiritual practice in my life, who has a meditative practice, which increases my ability of awareness. So I'm able to have some space around these things to allow it safely. But for the people who might be tuning into this, who don't have any idea of you know, like spiritual practice, what is that? I go to church every Sunday, but they, they haven't been like working with some of these things. How do they begin the process of coming to their body in a safe way that will not traumatize them? Because that can be a thing too, if you don't have the proper mm-hmm. framework for it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, two things. One is I think we're, when you describe the falling apart, because I said I was in pieces, I think we're falling apart anyway. So we can like look at it or we can turn away from it. Um, We're all, we're falling apart. I mean, there's so much evidence of that and that we need to fall apart. Um, That systems need to fall apart and crumble for us to actually birth what it is that we want to create um, for ourselves and for the future. So it's an illusion to, to feel like we're, we're like all put together here because there's so much that indicates we're not. Um, so there's that. And, um, I hear what you're saying about people not feeling safe coming into the body or having a practice to do that or framework. And so in, in finding refuge, I invite people to create some sort of space. Like it can be, in your kitchen, it could be in your car, it could be in this a park, wherever, where where someone can go, one can go and, and be with themselves and move through the practices. That's not a requirement, but it's an offering uh, invitation in the book. And um, I will also say that I think it starts small, like if it's starting with noticing the breath, and that's the practice, bringing awareness to the breath and then consciously breathing. And then checking in with how do I feel where I'm inhaling and exhaling? What does the breath feel like? What is the quality of the breath? What are the emotions that are flowing through right now? What are the physical sensations I feel? That is the place I feel like to begin is to come in that way. Um, Because I do think it can feel overwhelming if, especially if people don't connect to, to spiritual practice, even if they're actually engaging in spiritual practice and ritual and don't know it. That you begin, in my experience, beginning with the breath is, is and doing it in small chunks. Like for two minutes, I'm going to do it. Or I'm going to take 10 deep breaths and then I'm going to expand from there. Um, I think that's a way. And the other way, um, if people have access to, I'm in my home right now and I'm looking out in my yard and there's a lot of green around me. If people have access to the natural world in any way, whether that's them physically being able to move outside in some way or images of the natural world that resonate with them, I think that's another way to um, come into our interconnectedness and to remember we're in relationship with everything because it's like very clear to me as I look at the trees around me and the crows are cawing, right, in the yard and there's still some flowers blooming that that there's a lot more going on than what I think, right, in my experience, and I'm connected to what's going on around me. I think that's a spiritual practice. And for some folks, that might feel more accessible than sitting on a cushion and breathing for 
for two minutes a day and being conscious of the breath. Um, I, often I think calling in the elements is a, it's a, there's easier access um, for, for many folks into the body and into the heart and into deepening their awareness through the natural world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the idea of using the breath as um, kind of an anchor for both a meditation and for a lot of people, they go through their entire lives just shallowly breathing in their like upper chest and the effects that that has physiologically even on your uh, like your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. You're kind of wiring yourself to be more tense. And again, I think that tension kind of provides a sense of comfort for people who are afraid of the falling apart process. So even just by slowing your breath down and breathing deeper into your body, I, I feel like there might be even a lull where you kind of start to feel like a sense of groundlessness. And my teacher, um, my main teacher is Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, and he's got a beautiful saying that um, essentially like we're falling through open space, but the good news is, is that there's no ground, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? So I, I think in connecting with that ability, you can actually kind of find your orientation through that but you have to allow yourself to actually let your consciousness reside into the body. I think the breath is really one of the most beautiful ways that we can do that, which I'm a massage therapist as well. And that's usually the first thing I do. You know, people pay for an hour session, then we spend five minutes breathing together. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some people are like, why are we doing this? But by the end of that five minutes, like, oh, like, I actually have the ability to relax in my own body without anybody helping me. Right. That's mm-hmm. a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And the nervous system can settle in that five minutes or two minutes. or And if you're doing that with someone, there's co-regulation in that way, the nervous mm-hmm. system as well. Yeah. So what was it like for you? So you've always been kind of someone who feels very deeply about things. At what point in your life did you realize that grief was something that you could get your hands on and actually work with as a part of your spiritual path? Like, was there something that may have happened that was like, I need to focus on this? Or how did this kind of focus really develop in you? I think, um, you know, this is in my first book, Skill in Action. When I was born, I was, um, the afterbirth came out before me and I would not come out. And so they did, and I was losing oxygen and they did an emergency C-section. I was two months early. I was two pounds and three ounces. And I truly believe that I would not come out because I didn't know if I wanted to be here to do the work, right. To live into my Dharma. Um, And I didn't know if I wanted to come into this world where a lot of trauma was, was happening. I want people to know, like I'm joyful and happy as well. And I'm, I'm aware of the trauma that's happening in the world. Um, it's just part of my the way I see and view things and the suffering, I would say, in the world. So I, part of me wonders if the process of, of my birth and then I was taken away from my mom for nine days to a different hospital because they didn't have her preemie unit in the hospital where I was born. I mean, that to me feels so connected to grief on so many levels, <laughs> like Afterbirth came out before me. My mother had had a miscarriage before she had me. I think that's completely connected to the miscarriage and her grief that I'm not going to emerge and come out and they have to pull me out and bring me into the world. And I was two pounds and three ounces. That's tiny. Like the Mm -hmm. fact that I'm here in physical form is kind of a miracle because, I mean, I was in an incubator for a month. Like there's a lot going on at asthma, right? I was just a tiny little being. And so I, I, 
I think perhaps it began there or, um, you know, in, in the ancestors manifestation of who I was going to be and have shown up in this physical way at this time, the earthly realm. So that's part of my answer. I think I came in with this. And um, I think the experience of losing my friend Eric, which chapter four is about Eric, it was a kind of grief that I had never experienced before. I'd lost um, grandparents and my great grandmother at that time, by that point in my life. And um, I don't think I'd lost friends though. And Eric was such a dear friend to me and we had a long relationship. And I was actually thinking about him a lot yesterday. And so I think that made me um, really think about grief in a different way because there was such a hole in my life from not being able to like call him and talk to him and, and spend time with him. And I just hadn't had that experience before. Um, and I'm not sure if I knew that was going to sort of set me up or prepare me to then experience these other um, forms of grief and, and loss, but it was a really profound loss in my life, losing him. Um, and he died unexpectedly. He was 39 years old. He was young. Um, so it was a shock to the system. No one was prepared for it. So I also think the, the way he transitioned, that was a different experience for me with grief. And then, of course, the book goes through all these other experiences of grief. So subsequent to that, I had many other experiences of grief. And, and um, I also, the, the other part of this is that probably now about three or four years ago, um, I was in a dismantling racism training. I was leading it, co-leading it. And I realized what we were doing was grief work. I was like, what we are doing is holding people's grief. And I knew that before, but it became, it was like crystal clear in that moment because of whatever we were doing. And, and that's when I began to shift and say, I'm actually moving through grief in every space. Like if I'm working with a, I was a social worker for a long, I'm still a social worker, but I was in private practice and I'm working with a client I'm holding grief, right? If I'm leading a training around um, dismantling racism or anti-oppression work, I'm holding grief because we're holding history and how we're intertwined in all the ways and what we need to reckon with. Um, if I'm now working with an intuitive healing client, often I'm holding grief. So like, I think most of what I'm doing is is stewarding grief and holding it. And, and something in that moment in that dismantling racism workshop made me know, oh, this is part of your your work and your practice and your teaching. Like it is part of my spiritual teaching clearly, right. To talk about grief and to hold it in the way I do and hold the stuff that feels heavy um, that people don't actually know if they can, they can hold. So that's kind of a long answer, but came from different places. I feel like. Do you feel like your role in this? I mean, again, I'm going to go back to like the grief doula idea and that you're stewarding the grief. Do you find that most people who come to you are ready and already kind of like they just need a space or do you have to kind of work to coax this out and like convince or make them feel safe enough to do it? Or do you find that most people kind of come to you just ready to let go? I think most people um, come to me um, ready to open. And, you know, I, the amount of times I had clients come into my social work practice 
for the first time and they'd like sit on the couch and start sobbing. It happened all the time. And they'd be like, I don't know why I'm crying. And I was like, well, you waited a long time to get here. Like, that's why you're crying right now. And finally, there's a space where you can land and someone's going to hold this with you. I have, I have that experience a lot. And so um, I know some of it has to do with how I, how I hold space and what people understand about me as they're coming to work with me. Um, and that, that they know I will hold it with them, that we're like in partnership with this grief and their process. So most people come ready to open and, and to release, I would say. And I think this like most people just need a space to do that. Yeah. That feels safer than the world feels, right? Mm -hmm. All the noise of the world. I think most people need that and desire that. So I don't really have to like, I can't describe it. There's something about my facilitation and holding space that actually creates the conditions for people to go deep. Mm -hmm. I know some about it, but I don't know everything because I don't witness myself facilitate, but there's something about it that I'm like intuitive and tuning into the group or, or with the person enough to know like something's under the surface that needs to be surfaced right now. So what is it and how do I bring that out? But in a way that doesn't feel forceful. Mm, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. The way that hearing you talk about grief, like I actually wanted to start the podcast with this is making a differentiation between regular sadness and grief. Would you say that it's, because I mean, my idea is, I mean, this is also from like the Buddhist things, you can feel pain without there being any suffering attached to it. It's not the experience itself that is the issue, but it's your attachment to an expectation or like, oh, this just isn't how it should be. Is grief kind of, is it unnecessary or is it possible to avoid as you're navigating difficulty or is it pretty much inevitable? I do think there's a difference in sadness and, and grief or pain and, and the pain we might experience that is not attached to suffering and, and true suffering. Um, and obviously sadness is often part of the process of grieving. Um, and I think, I, I do think loss is inevitable. So we can make a choice about how we grieve um, or whether or not to grieve. I think you know, suffering is inevitable, um, at just given how things are and the human experience and what it means to be alive. Um, and grief is a process and sadness to me is not, it's an emotion mm -hmm. and making space to grieve is this process I move through. Now, sadness might turn into joy or something just ambivalence or, you know, respite, something else, but grief is like, there are these stages and we move through them not in a linear way and it looks like this and it can actually look many ways that feels different the quality of that feels different to me than sadness mm -hmm. um, and in my own experience I've I have I feel sadness a lot or heartbreak a lot and then there are moments where I'm actually in a process of grieving mm -hmm. and it's clear to, it's like clear to me or grief comes and visits me and I'm like oh here we go on the wave like this is what what we're about to do yeah. um so yeah, that's what I'd say about sadness and grief. Mm, yeah, that, that sounds about right. So what would you have to say about the idea of ancestral grief? This is something that I know um, people of color have to deal with probably to a higher degree because of our nation's sordid history. How exactly does that kind of 
like what's the process of that being passed down from person to person? So I know in like the Buddhist tradition, the idea of karma, like reincarnation, from my current understanding is that it's the energies that you're dealing with less than like the individual soul. But it's like if you're a very angry person and you die, that angry energy will kind of proliferate through your connections. So is that is it kind of something like that? Or does it shape the way that your parents' nervous system was? Is it biological? Is it like a spiritual energy? Or how does that pass from generation to generation? I think it's both biological and energetic um, and perhaps karmic. Um, I think because we know there's been research done on how trauma is passed on in the nervous system. So that's why I think it's biological in that way that like my ancestors certainly passed on their unresolved trauma and their experiences of, of living in a white supremacy culture. And of course, of many other systems, they pass that on to me. It's housed in my body. So is all of their resilience. I always say this, right? They're inside me right now, but that trauma is there too. And an awareness of it. And, and my, um, my conditioned responses and tendencies. So the way that I operate and don't know why I'm behaving in that way, I'm sure that that is from ancestors, right? These automatic responses. Um, so there's that piece. And I think that we all actually carry ancestral trauma. The nature of it may be different, but we all carry it. Um, and in the moment of falling apart into pieces and witnessing myself in that, what I know was happening was ancestral trauma was coming out and, and moving through me. And that was one of the reasons why I couldn't contain what was going on because it wasn't just my trauma. It was my ancestors and reflecting back, it was, the, it was like the world's like, we have mm -hmm. not healed from this yet. Um, and I don't know when we will, I'm anticipating the next trauma happening. And so I know all, it was a, just a massive pivotal moment, um, a scary moment, but pivotal, like all of that was moving through me. And I know people have, you know, different associations with their ancestors and, and some people want to distance from ancestors because of our history um, in this, in, in the U.S., in this country. And that may be true in other spaces too. And I feel like there's no way to distance given that we're carrying them inside us, <laughs> like they're with us. So when we say we don't want to be connected, we're connected. And then it's like, how are we going to be connected? And are there ancestors that we actually need to set some boundaries around because we don't want that energy um, in our lives or, or held within the body. And the other piece is that I, I know um, my process of healing and like manifesting, finding refuge and listening to the ancestors that that has provided some healing in my line, my bloodline going back. And it will provide some healing moving forward. And it is providing healing right now in the present time and space. Mm -hmm. So um, there's the trauma and then there's the work we do to heal ourselves, which can have an effect on our, our line moving back in the past and forward, which I think is important for people to know, like that's a thing that can happen yeah. um, given our relationship with, with ancestors. Could you go a little bit more deeply into the idea? Cause I've heard this from a few different teachers that you can heal your ancestry and you're like, the past you can heal the past by doing the work now how does that i just have a hard time wrapping my head around is it just because you're kind of clearing out that karmic charge and how does that affect the past i just am so lost about that well 
I'll give you an example from Finding Refuge. So chapter three is about my father, Cornelius. He transitioned in 2017. And um, I had not seen him for like seven years, I think, prior to his transition. Uh, we, we weren't close. I mean, we were, he was my father, but we were not close. And um, getting the news of his passing was shocking because I had just moved to Portland, Oregon. I was there for a year and I got the news 11 days after I arrived there. So I wasn't settled. And then I get this news that's kind of confusing. And my father, um, he definitely, I think, had a lot of trauma and experienced a lot of trauma and, and didn't have space to heal it or resources or, I mean, there could be many factors that contributed to his inability to work on healing and to move through his own process of healing. After he transitioned, I went to see a psychic that I see like once a year and, sh- and I walked in and she said, she often she'll know what's going on. She's a psychic. And she said, your father is unsettled. And I was like, oh yeah, I can feel that. And she's like, he's doing a life review and he's very disgusted with himself. And he can't be like around you in any way um, after his training. Like he can't show up because he's really feeling disgusted. Like he, he's looking back and feeling regret. So, um, you know, that was 2017. And then I wrote this in the, the late winter and spring of 2020, Finding Refuge, and um, wrote about my father and one of his experiences with trauma that actually many people didn't know. And I added it to the book. I'd written the chapter and I went back and added it to the book. And something said this story needs to be told. So before that time, my father would show up in ways like that were, I felt his unsettled energy. He would show up to my mom, then she would like talk to me about it. And I'd be like, yeah, he showed up the other night here and through this wind chime and it was ringing and there was no wind and it was actually inside the house. And I associate wind chimes with my father mm-hmm. because they started ringing after he transitioned and there was no wind and it happened all in the neighborhood I was in. And so every time I hear a wind chime, I'm like, oh, that's my dad. But this was like ringing and and I could feel him. And so I wrote this story about him and finding refuge. And I would say about six months ago, I started to feel his energy differently. Mm. And I was like, oh, something's different. Or maybe it was like three months ago. It wasn't even six months. Something's different. And mm. and my mother didn't know this about me. And she talked to me and, and she said she'd had some experience with him and felt like, oh, something's transitioning for him. And then I said, mom, I have the same feeling. Because when his energy shows up, it's it's a lot more settled. So that's just a long answer, but I'm saying this so it's like people can, it's it's sort of a tangible example of where I think my own experience of healing trauma, of writing this book, of uplifting him as a complicated human, but one who experienced trauma, and having some love for him and like extending grace um, and telling a story that for many reasons, I'm sure he, I, I understand why he didn't tell his own story. I mean, he told me, but didn't tell the world. Um, I think that allowed him to heal Yeah. some part of himself. Um, and that was healing for me and healing for him. So this is an example where I think, you know, when we do our work and when we understand we're connected to ancestors 
Um, and maybe we're working with their stories too, or our relationship with them, that there's some op- opportunity to heal. Because I also believe ancestors show up and can support us or can show up as um, energies that want to cling in a way that will prevent us from healing. Wow. And my father wasn't doing that initially, but he just wasn't settled and I didn't want that energy. And so I would just be like, I don't want you in this space right now. Yeah. Um, I don't want to hold this energy. And now I'm kind of like, you can, if you're settled, you can come in. But yeah. I think it has everything to do with, with writing about him and, and humanizing him in a way that I'm not sure. I, I think I humanized him a lot, but it, during his, his time on earth, but I'm not sure it would have happened in the same way that it did in finding refuge of telling the story about losing him and his life and, and his experience and the tenderness of this moment where he, he shared about trauma with me. Yeah. I think that that's something that a lot of people really kind of need for their healing is to feel like it's okay. And that there is a humanization that ends up happening. I find so much when we're dealing with grief and we're in the isolation of it and we feel absolutely rotten and then we feel bad about feeling bad. And then we kind of like make ourselves feel subhuman and then it just kind of spirals. So just by having that radical acceptance um, in the Buddhist tradition, they call it Maitri or loving kindness. Mm-hmm. It's like holding your pain in a cradle of loving kindness and that's a part of why we do like meta practice of doing that for other beings as well. And just like saying like, it's okay, like I understand, I think has a lot to do with alleviating that tension because then you're able to like, okay, like someone is holding me, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And it, ma- and it makes me think about the story I told about my, about my father and the way this book and the story um held him right and then allowed him to show up in a different way um so yeah and then i'm not carrying that trauma inside me in the same way it's expressed it's out there it's not going to be passed on in this way right Um, Right. so yeah and i get that it can be hard for people it's like what is this you know like people um i understand that um and i think it's a process to to work with energies in the way we're talking about. And really, I think part of that process is openness to the fact that there are energies and spirits and ancestors around us. And and often they're waiting to support us. Um, But if they are not waiting to support us and not showing up in this benevolent way that we can set some boundaries around that. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool that we're able to have this conversation without like the question of like, well, like, are you sure about that? Because like, that shared understanding, the idea of that mm-hmm. the energies, it's not localized to just like that time period. It kind of bleeds into all of like that time is now. You right. Know? Like time isn't a linear thing. It's circular. So you still get to work with it even if the body isn't there. I just wanted mm-hmm. to throw that out there. Something that I find interesting and also an intersection with a lot of your work do you think that a lot of people's hesitation to acknowledge white supremacy and the institutionalized racism that we have could potentially be because a lot of people's ancestors have been actively um, benefiting from these institutions? Like, say, someone's ancestor was a slave owner. Like, do you Mm -hmm. think that that karmic energy is still, even if they themselves aren't racist or at least knowing or Mm -hmm. acknowledging it do you think it's affecting them yeah i mean i think and this happens a lot um for white-bodied folks when they um awaken 
to what's going on. There can be this, it's making me think about the fetal position we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. There can be this, I don't want to see this or know this. Um, I understand this is happening and maybe even understand how I'm implicated, but I don't want to go back and see that connection with ancestors and how I'm benefiting from the, the oppression they perpetuated. Like that's a lot of work and white body folks are still benefiting from the white supremacy system. So there's nothing incentivizing white bodied folks on a economic or, or physical or emotional level, spiritually and on a soul level, there needs to be something incentivizing white bodied folks or anyone who has privilege, right. And is, connected to perpetuating oppression. Um, and, and I think, I think the dominant culture reinforces that, right? Like those were my ancestors, not me. Well, great. And your ancestors are my ancestors and that's held within my body and it's affecting how I move through the world. And I still have to confront white supremacy every day. Like that's the reality. And, and, White-bodied folks won't understand that based on race in, in a lived way. Like that's not, it's not contained in the body in the same way. So it's really hard to articulate that and have that felt and seen. Although it, I think it can happen in spaces where there's some, um, you know, deep listening and openness to the fact that folks are moving through the world differently than other folks. Like I've seen, I facilitate spaces like that. I've seen that a lot. And there's, there's some um, opportunity for that. So, yeah, I think it's dominant culture. I think it's the like deny, forget, pretend and the resistance. Um, and I think it's it's also about when we awaken to what is, then we're responsible. Yeah. And that's big work. Mm-hmm. And so if people are able to say, this is not part of me, I'm going to be a good person and live in this way, right? Um, without actually understanding how they're connected to everyone and everything. And it's not just about their experience. Um, I think people can like stay in that space, uh, but that doesn't really feel like true awakening to me or continued awakening, I would say. And I think we have to like reawaken over and over and over. And that's part of what being human in this space allows us to do. There's some opportunity to do that and it's painful and it's challenging. Yeah. That, I mean, this show, I mean, I consider this kind of like wellness expanded. It, this is all about becoming as fully embodied in this century as we can be. And a big reason why I wanted to bring the social justice conversation to this is because I think it is ripe for opportunity of really stepping into what is. And for me, it's always been kind of a no-brainer of like, maybe not always been, you know, I definitely come from a past of ignorance as well, but the opportunity to engage with these truths as somebody who has benefited from these systems, like I want to know, like I, I want to see how my actions affect. And to me, it's kind of like, it's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to tear, like take off armor, you know, mm-hmm. and I can definitely mm-hmm. see it does take a sense of nervous system regulation and capacity in order to do that. And I can recognize some people are already stressed to the max trying to do their nine to five jobs. And like, I empathize with that. But also at the same time, I think it's the thing that you shield yourself the most from, which is probably what you need to lean into in order for yeah. you to expand your capacity. But it, it, I can also see it's very hard for some people who are just trying to put food on the table. They're like, now nah, you're talking to me about institutionalized racism. Like, I'm not that, you know, and like, because they're already so stressed to the max. And what can we do as someone who is in my position, who I don't really face any form of oppression, 
my ancestors were Jewish, they had a thing going on, but I have not experienced that in my life. My dad hasn't. What can I do in this current chapter to continue to pull off the armor and to see and to be a part of the solution? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, you know, I mean, we can all understand that we don't know what we don't know and that there's a lot to learn um, and we can be open to that learning and we can practice listening. I think also humility is really key to this. <laughs> like we can be humble um, and we can recognize I mean, one of the biggest things is recognizing that people are moving through the world differently than I am based on the points of oppression I embody, the points of privilege I embody, that folks are having like disparate experiences. And um, I think that's important for me to remember because I think it calls me into to care and collective care and solidarity in a different way. Um, and I know it calls me into that. Um, for sure, that awareness of interconnectedness, and yet um, we're not actually having the same experience because of systems that are in place. Um, And I would say um, when people notice resistance around the things we're even talking about here, we've been talking about, I would invite people to really become curious about that. Like, what is that? Where does it come from? Is it a conditioned response? Where did you learn it? Um, Has it been passed on in your line? And then what can you do about that? Um, I feel like that's, there's a, I mean, one could work on that for their lifetime, right? Like, what is this about? And how is it affecting my relationship to self and others and the planet? And how is it causing disconnection? And what is it made of? So I feel like, you know, that's different than like going to the rally and protesting and writing the legislator. And I think we need to do all of those things and voting. Like, I think we need to do all the things on all the levels. Yeah. And I also think we need to notice like internally, how have I been socialized and how has this resistance been conditioned and where did it come from and how is it preventing me from being whole and creating conditions for everyone to, to be full, whole beings um, and to be in their humanity and humanized in the way we spoke of earlier. Mm-hmm. So this might be a, a bit of a personal thing. I have people in my life who are still perpetuating some of these things. And as somebody who is trying to do this work, trying to understand, connect, and places a lot of value on this exploration, to have people in your life that you care about who actively to this day are not respecting of that and are still connected to these older ideas from, you know, they grew up in like the sixties and, you know, in different parts, like how do you interact with people who don't understand or respect the work that our generation has to do to bridge this gap and to be able to truly heal this kind of division? Does that make sense? It does. And I think people ask this a lot about family or people given or or chosen, like, how do I talk to grandma at the table when she says the whatever thing, the oppressive thing, the racist Mm -hmm. thing, the classist thing, the whatever it is. And I do think it's challenging with family um, for sure, because they're, they're close to us in in this way. Um, And I do think that's a place where we need to do our work too, like on that level. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I encounter people who don't 
family or not, who don't want to um, believe what I'm saying about my understanding of the world or my experience with an awareness, there are different experiences. I'm, I'm well aware of that. Um, I always remember that there was a time when I didn't know what I now know. Mm-hmm. Like there was a time when I didn't know um, all the, like, I think on some level, I knew a lot of what we were, we've been talking about, but couldn't articulate it. But there are plenty of things that I didn't know, don't know now, right? And so I try to remember, they just don't know, or they're resisting the truth. And when have I done that? Um, And I also, when possible, because it depends on the conditions. Like if I'm at risk of being harmed, then it's going to be a different reaction than if I'm in conversation with somebody who's kind of just confused about it or you know, wants to talk about it, but doesn't really know how. And I encountered someone like that the other day, actually at a book reading for Finding Refuge. I think I try to extend grace um, while also caring for myself if if what they're asking me to do is going to take something from me. Um, and then lastly, I would say, you know, I'm, I remind this happened in a workshop once when someone was really resistant and explicit about it. And um, I just said, you have agency, like you have a choice. There's a cost if you don't participate in this, but you have a choice. And sometimes I find that's a helpful intervention or interruption of the behavior. Like people will suffer if you don't do your work. And if you don't engage in this conversation, and if you're unwilling to learn more and see that the world is different than you thought it was, like, People will suffer and you will suffer because of that. Mm-hmm. But you have a choice about what you do. Um, so I found that to be um, interesting as an intervention and helpful. Like you, you decide if you yeah. want to continue to engage in this suffering, creating it in the way that many have, or if you want to actually work with it in a different way and potentially create conditions for liberation. I love that. Yeah, grace is definitely something I think is an important part of this. And I love that you emphasize that like they themselves are suffering. That's something that I thought is like when you have that choice and you keep choosing to stay in this limited framework that oppresses people, not only are you hurting other people, you are hurting yourself because you're actually closing off your heart to the fullness of human expression and you're limiting your idea of what it even means to be a human to like certain categories where if you hit these specific boxes and really you're limiting your ability to connect and empathize and be with the world, you know, like that's, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the really sad things about it is it's all self-perpetuated suffering that affects Mm -hmm. a lot of people, you know, it's kind of like an addiction in that way. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it is something I try to do a lot is recognize that sometimes often people's outward expression, especially in the way we're talking about where there's resistance or is from a place of suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, And that orients me in a different way to that person. Um, Then they just don't want to hear this. Right. Well, there's something in the way of it. And how is that connected to suffering? I'm not always able to do that because I am human. But I try to do that and show up in that way. Yeah. Well, and it's it's hard because it's like sometimes they don't want to be, nobody wants to be roused from their sleep. You know, you you have your nice little dream going on of how things are. And oftentimes all it takes is that one crack in your framework. And it's like, well, 
if I consider this, then I have to consider that. And, you know, and then it becomes the slippery slope, which results in liberation to some degree, but also at the same time, you know, it's your ego getting kind of shaken up and um, just kind of Mm -hmm. untightened. And that can be, it can be a scary process. You know, it can be very Mm -hmm. ungrounding because then you realize like, oh, I have lived my entire life from a very limited perspective. And to people like us, I'm sure it's like, yeah, let's, that's what we're leaning into. That's what we want to do is expand. But again, the expansion also results in falling apart. Right. And that's that's what everyone's defending from. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we are at time, Michelle. Thank you so much. I really appreciated this. Again, I've been looking forward to this um, for a couple of weeks now, uh, really months, but really since I read your book, I've been like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me here and having the conversation and working with Finding Refuge and doing mm-hmm. the work you do. Thank you. Where can people find you? How can they plug in? And like, do you have any offerings coming up in the future? I have a ton of offerings all the time. So my website, Michelle C. Johnson, is the best way to find me. Um, And the website's updated almost every other day with with an event. So I have events focused on finding refuge, uh, book readings and immersions or retreats or workshops. And then I have workshops that are focused on skill and action um, and some workshops that are a combination of of the two because they're actually very connected and there are a few other things on there facilitation training that's coming up and there's a lot going on um so i'd love for people to connect with me in that way um, and reach out if they have questions or want to continue to to learn um, in this way and i'm going to assume that those are virtual then they are uh there's an, an offering November where I might be in Boston um, and an offering December where I might be in New Orleans and obviously assessing that every day, trying to figure out what to do. But if those don't happen in person, they'll be virtual. And most of the offerings are virtual offerings. Okay. Cool. So, yeah. It's been yeah. like one of the honestly, like low key blessings, like the silver lining is like, I got to work with my meditation teacher because of COVID, like it wouldn't have happened otherwise. And, you know, that's like the one like glimmer that I've been like, people can interact who normally wouldn't have been able to. So that's always cool. I know from all over the world. Yeah. 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 Uh, create actual genuine community and do real deep work. So mm-hmm. that's me kind of plugging your stuff to my listeners too. Like <laughs> if you're interested. Yeah. Awesome. Thank well, thank you. you so much, Michelle. I'll maybe talk to you soon. <laughs> thank you. All right, friends, that was the episode. Thanks so much for listening all the way through till the end. I truly do make this show for you. That was the one and only Michelle C. Johnson. If you want to keep in touch with her and her platform, she is on Instagram, Facebook. Her website is michellecjohnson.com. She's got links to where you can buy her two books. She does have a, I think it's a revision coming out of Skill in Action this year, second edition, I believe. I screw all those up. But yeah, keep in touch with her. She has a bunch of really amazing content to the same quality that she has here. Um, So if you felt like you need a little bit more of this conversation, she has a lot to share. Um, She gets a lot more in detail through the yogic practice on how to really navigate these energies and 
her book, uh, Finding Refuge, has a lot of exercises if you're feeling really called to take on this work, and I really encourage it. Um, if you want to check out more of this show, head on over to 21stCenturyVitalism.com. We have close to 50 episodes at this point, um, and I, I really stand by pretty much every guest that I've had on. Everybody has been, uh, frankly, a master in what they do, and it's been an honor to record these conversations to be able to brush arms with people that I am inspired by. You know, I keep doing this because I'm really enjoying where I'm getting to go with all this. So uh, your support means the world to me. It really does help keep the the gears oiled, so to speak. You know, it helps to know that there is a um, background to the foreground that is me making the show. So you really do make this all possible. Head on over to patreon.com slash 21stCenturyVitalism if you want to support us monetarily. Once I get to a certain amount of viewership, then I'm going to be unveiling the rewards, which I have pretty well charted out at this point. It's just a matter of um, finding the right time to really let that all out in the public. Um, We're also on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. You know what to do with all of that stuff. And I hope you have a great week. And we will see you in two weeks with another fresh out the oven conversation.